Hello, hello, and welcome to this episode of Her Music Academia, the podcast. I am your host, Lydia Bangura. This is the show where I talk all about music. I have experiences in music performance as an opera singer, and I'm currently conducting music research as a PhD student at the University of Michigan. Love talking all things music, especially black music, and I have guests on the show to talk about what they do in music. Lots of music scholarship, music performance. Today on the show, we are wrapping up our series of conversations for Women's History Month. I'm so excited to have Dr. Vivian Long on the podcast today. She's a music theorist currently teaching at the University of Oklahoma. Vivian is also a proud Michigan alum, go Blues! We talk all about her experiences at the University of Michigan. We talk about her experiences as a pianist, and we talk about how she got involved with researching and writing about feminist music theory. Specifically, we discuss her Music Theory Online article, which is called Rethinking Music Loving, and her Engaged Music Theory blog post. The links to both those pieces will be in the show notes. Without further ado, here's our conversation. Alright, hello everyone and welcome to this very special episode of the podcast. We are in the middle of Women's History Month. I am so excited for all the guests that I have planned for this month. Uh, and one of them is uh, an, a, Mich- a Michigan alum uh, that I'm really excited to talk to today. Uh, it is Dr. Vivian Long. Vivian, how are you? Hi, thanks for having me. I'm doing as alright as can be. Yeah. Yes, mid-semester, feeling mid-semester, it. Mid-semester, um, we had a tornado. I don't want to sound like too like Oklahoman, but we had a tornado earlier this week. So like I'm still recovering from that. Ex- I mean, we weren't hit hard where I was, but my students have been affected. So. Oh, sure. Wow. Yeah, so it's been a week of dealing with that kind of energy, but I'm we have sunny weather now, so fingers crossed. Wow, glad to hear that you're okay. Um, in Michigan, we had this really scary ice storm <laughs> that happened last week. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I in like southeastern Michigan, um, it was like 24 hours of like freezing rain, and then a bunch of like generators and stuff blew up. So literally around 900,000 people lost power in their homes which was oh, no. really intense. I did not lose power, uh, but it was really businesses, homes. It was really it was really intense. And uh, several of uh, my friends here in Michigan didn't get their power back on for maybe like three days. Oh, so it was a, it took DT a long time to, uh, <laughs> to, to get it together. So that was, that was the whole thing. But, you know, we're here. Uh, it's, it's actually winter break for me. It is snowing outside right now. (laughs) So, uh, it is a winter break, but I am, uh, safely inside and I'm really happy to be talking to you. So thank you so much for being on the show. Yeah. Perfect weather to do a podcast. (laughs) Yes. Cozy podcast weather. Uh, so I normally start off the podcast by, um, always talking about how I came to be familiar with the guests. So I actually, when I was still doing my master's, I got my master's in voice at Roosevelt University in Chicago. And I was, this was in 2020 or early 2021. I remember 
um, during my master's, the thing that kind of kicked off my interest in music theory and in possibly getting a PhD was I was in a class with Dr. David Kerr, who's been on the podcast, friend of the show. Go back and listen to Dr. Kerr's episode. Uh, we were uh, reading a chapter from Queering the Pitch. And so I I read Suzanne Cusick's chapter in there, which we also have a podcast episode about. Uh, and I remember that really changing my relationship to music like pretty drastically. When I read that chapter, I had just never read anything like that. I had never read anything that made me interested in reading more music scholarship and think about writing my own music scholarship about like, what would I write if I was to write about my experiences with music? So it really changed my relationship to music and to sexuality, to be honest, uh, kind of reimagining what queerness is and can be when we're talking about relationships with abstract concepts, <laughs> you know, when we're talking about relationships with not people, um, what does that say about sexuality and about queerness and about gender? And so I remember going on this big, like, Suzanne Cusick kick, or I was just looking up everything that I could find. And then I found your MTO article. And I was like, who is this Dr. Long? Interesting stuff. Um, so I really, really enjoyed your article. And then it was later that I had found out that you um, were a Michigan grad. So um, yeah, I'm just I, I was aware of you and really thankful of your work from the beginning and uh, and really excited to talk to you about music loving. Yeah, it's lovely to hear that you had an undergrad experience, right? Your undergrad? Uh, okay. No, this was my master's, but I was still, master's. yeah, I was still uh, doing performance. So very much mm. have not ever read a book, <laughs> was just, <laughs> you know, going off of singing vibes. And it, it was kind of the kick that I needed to be like, oh, reading is interesting. Writing is interesting. I could get into that. Yeah, and like, I don't know, Suzanne's piece. Oh, it's such a great way to get into all those issues. And it's such a great like, yeah, introduction to all these questions that you so eloquently talked about. Mm -hmm, yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah, so thank you for your work. Let's uh, get started with talking a bit about you and about your own musical background history. So things like, you know, where you're from and um, the music that was happening in your household and in your city when you were growing up. So the things that you were listening to, if you came from a musical family, if other people in your family are musicians and kind of that environment uh, when you were a child. Yeah. Um, so um, I know you sent me this prompt before and I had a, like a really fun time thinking about my musical upbringing because my research is on storytelling and analysis of storytelling um so I had a good time thinking about like how do I want to shape the story today and like in what spaces like have I not been able to share certain aspects about my experience that I think your podcast and your question really is opening up for me so um here's my attempt to articulate all that so um so I grew up in Toronto, Canada. I was born there. And my parents um, are Vietnamese refugees, so working class immigrant experience. And so um, I'm going to try to frame my musical sort of upbringing along those lines of like access to, you know, piano lessons and mm. resources of buying an instrument and all that wasn't easy. Yep. Um, and also just like a lot of, you know, like translation, cultural, like, you know, ish, like just like fitting into Canada and and that kind of issue. Um, I think 
made music both um, something that I really enjoyed doing and that like my parents loved music a lot. We played it all the time mm -hmm. in our house and my parents loved singing. They would have a karaoke machine. So I got all of that. Um, but at the same time, it was very difficult to sort of get, you know, pedagogical support or resources like buying a piano was like a big feat for my family to do for me um mm. I I got some training as a classical pianist and all that um so I was really grateful then um growing up in Canada for like public school music programs yeah. so um we had a really great like choir program in my elementary school so like I, I I learned how to sing by rote really young and then from there I fell in love with the clarinet which was actually my first like instrument instrument and if you know the voice is like you know another kind of instrument mm. like one that's external I suppose to my body would be the clarinet and um and that was easier for me to learn because we had like a band program at my school mm. and I didn't have to buy an instrument they loaned it to me so it was more accessible that mm. way yeah and I um so I started on the clarinet and then I, I was thinking about how I actually got into piano and I think it was actually peer pressure because all of my close friends in elementary school were playing the piano and I wanted to be cool like them Wow. So I begged my parents for um, for lessons and it took like some convincing because, again, of my like working class background, like, you know, money for lessons was hard. We didn't have a piano. So it, it was a lot for me to convince them that like this would be an asset for me and my learning and in my growth as you know a tiny human. Um, so they eventually, you know, I won them over and I got piano lessons. And then from there, um, I continued to play clarinet through high school and through the band experience in high school. I also continued singing, started like a cover band with some friends. So like I had a very diverse sort of musical experience at the same time I was taking classical piano lessons and sort of going through the Royal Conservatory of Music curriculum in Canada, which, you know, involves like Baroque music, classical music, you know, so that kind of main kind of canon that we would consider a part of the Western art canon. Mm. Um, and then I guess through high school and I was the first person in my immediate family to really have to navigate the like North American university experience. Sure. Um, I really had to, I guess, make you know, the choice to be a musician um, or to try to make a career as a musician really legible to my family. Yeah. And I think the easiest way for me to make that legible for them and to choose my program was that, well, if I become a concert pianist or if I pursue piano performance, I could teach piano. I right. could start my own studio and that seemed like the most viable thing versus I had never been able to convince my parents to buy me a clarinet I couldn't really make it as a, a cover band performer and gig right so it was a way to make legitimate my love of music um, from my family and my parents mm. and so that is how I ended up in an undergraduate program in piano performance in Ontario um, at Wilfrid Laurier University and it was really there that um, I had this wonderful um, music theory mentor, Kevin Swinton, who was just opened my ears, my minds, um, my mind, my everything to like how cool music theory was and how it was really applicable to my um, experiences as a performer. And he also did a really cool thing in theory one, which is that after, you know, learning species counterpoint and, and, you know, all the things that we would consider like Western art 
centric in terms of like musical literacy um, through the semester, he spent a day um, on feminist music theory, like just was like, hey, I know that like right now you might not be able to connect what we're talking about in terms of the fundamentals and, and part writing to your all of your musical interests, but let's read something outside of the canon and see if you can like find some inspiration there. Wow. So I read this piece by Laurie Burns on this like like resistant feminist cover of like a song about domestic abuse. Um and when the cover by was by Katie Lang and it just blew my mind. Like that I could talk about gender in a music theory setting. And then from there, I really wanted to pursue that line of, of, of research. And at the same time, I was also still interested in performance. So I ended up trying to marry all of those interests and that ended up in becoming, you know, like a master's thesis later at McGill on performance and analysis. And then at Michigan, studying under Marianne Cook and Karen Fournier, I was able to pursue sort of the my desire to think more about gender and sexuality in music theory. So that's my story um, of my musical upbringing um, as I, I kind of approach it today. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Oh, I already have so many questions. I'm like, we have to back up. I <laughs> thank you for sharing all that um, and for sharing your experiences. We definitely share the experience of, of having immigrant parents. My parents are from Sierra Leone. So I'm a first generation American and definitely having to justify um, your interest in music or, or how it could be a viable career option for you um, is something that I definitely had to do. You know, my parents were very much like, um, we did not move to the United States for you to become a musician. You know, you're supposed to be a dentist or something. I don't know um, what they envisioned me being, probably a doctor or a lawyer, that sort of thing. Um, but I will be a doctor mom of music. <laughs> So that's how I won them over to eventually. <laughs> yeah. Okay. And then, yes, this is also a common experience as far as um, having to justify your musical career through education. Well, I'll be able to teach. And that's kind of something that my parents can, yes, grab onto as far as like, well, now I'm getting a doctorate and maybe I'll be a professor and all that stuff. Whereas, like, being a, um, a music performer. My first instrument was viola. So I played viola for about 10 years and then switched to voice when I got to college and was like fully in on opera that I'm going to be this huge opera singer. And my parents were just like, it's not the math's not mathing. <laughs> how do you make money from that? And I also was like, how do I make money from this? Um, so yeah. Um, so thank you for sharing all those experiences. Going back to your experience, um, as far as I, I, I might be mistaken. I think it's when you said that you were already in grad school as far as when you had that moment of of reading some scholarship and thinking, oh, this is a really interesting way to think about music um, and kind of how you reconcile your relationship to performance with uh, with wanting to invest in music theory. So do you still identify as a performer? Oh, that's a good question. Um, and also to clarify, yeah, that experience I had was in my first semester of my undergrad. Oh, undergrad. Ooh, okay. I know. Great. I, it was it was a great experience. Um, but do I still identify as a performer? Um sometimes, you know, so sometimes I do play musical examples for my students and I can draw on my past experience of what it was like to be a performer and to make those connections to my students, both undergrad and graduate. 
but I also don't want to claim it um, entirely because I know that like, you know, my students practice for hours and hours a day and have all this ensemble experience and these other kinds of embodied experiences that I no longer have. So I don't know if I entirely fit into the label performer anymore because of I don't have that intensive, you know, experience with music anymore. Yeah, I mean, yeah. that's that's really bringing up, you know, a question of how much do you have to practice in order to qualify as a musician? That's, mm. you know, I have an episode with uh, Mark Hannaford where he he still identifies as a pianist. He has his background in jazz piano and still makes recordings and stuff like that. So he doesn't, uh, to my knowledge, do a lot of live performances, but he has an ensemble that he does recordings with. And um, in him talking about his experience with how do you manage, especially when you're in the junior faculty position, as far as like, you know, first arriving at on the scene at a university and trying to get tenure and all this stuff, you're putting so much into your academic side than what happens naturally to the performance side. And he phrased it in this way, as far as like, okay, if I can be realistic about committing, you know, 20 minutes of practice a day, that then means that you have to be incredibly efficient with how you practice, right? So you have to really think about, do I need to practice scales? Do I need to practice, right? Like, do I need to spend hours and hours doing arpeggios or doing all these different exercises? Or can I, you know, approach these 20 minutes with, like, with a with an, a more realistic and can be clarifying, right, idea of what, it, what practice actually looks like now? So I do think, you know, I also went to a conservatory, so I have that, um, um, or sorry, I don't, I don't know if you mentioned if you went to a conservatory. I don't want to. Uh, I did not actually, I don't know okay. actually how to describe my undergraduate experience other okay. than it was like a small program and I was a performer and so okay. I had okay. a conservatory like experience with that. Right, yeah. right. Um, but you know, my experience in conservatory was like, yeah, if you're not practicing however many hours a day, then you're never going to make it. You're not going to be successful. You're not a real musician. And so how can we actually reframe those, you know, pretty harmful ways about thinking about musicianship? excellence progress um, into what is realistic for us, uh, especially at this current season in time, especially knowing that it might not always look like that. You might have more time to practice later down the road. There might be more performance opportunities later down the road. And it's not this, you know, uh, it's not a fixed set in stone thing, our relationship to both academia and to performance that like there, there's some give and take as far as how much time and energy we can invest. So yeah, I just think that's hard though. It is really hard to 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 feel like a performer if you're not fully investing your whole self into it because that's what we've been taught is a successful performer. You know. Yeah, you're you're framing this really helpful and in, in making me think about you know. Again, my research is all about thinking about all these internalized narratives that we take on that also, you know, end up reifying structures of repression, right? Mm -hmm. um, and um, stereotypes of like who counts as musicians and whatnot. So I really appreciate that reframing and like um, that not all of us might have the time or the resources to devote the seven to nine hours that we might need to practice as a pianist in order to count as a performer, but um, 
that my connection to music and and my primary instrument still matters. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Great. So I'd love to talk a little more about um, your experience at Michigan in particular. You know, as someone who's currently navigating the program, my experience has been um, positive so far, which is great. Um, So I'd love to hear about just like why you chose Michigan, how you feel like your time was here, all of that stuff. Sure. Um, Yeah, so Michigan wasn't my first graduate school experience, so I feel like it might be helpful to maybe put it into comparison with um, my master's experience at McGill, which was a wonderful experience in itself, but offered, you know, just something completely different. Like the two institutions are so different. So at McGill, I was in a very intensive, very quick, like two years master's program, wrote a thesis, got out. Mm. And And it was a a theory master's? Theory master's. I worked with Renee Roosh, who's also now faculty at the University of Michigan. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I got a lot of like, you know, a a sense of what was like classic canonical at the center of music theory at my time, during my time at McGill, I suppose. So Mm. like we did a pro seminar with Renee, which really did blow my mind a bit in terms of like her, the narrative that she set up about the origins of the field, you know, Mm. um, the splits in musicology, the Kerman, Agawu debate, all of those like key articles. So it was really lovely learning about the history of the field that way. And we also did have a gender week or and sexuality week where we read the Suzanne Cusick article. We also read McClary's classic piece on um, Beethoven 9 and, and, the, and the Beanstalk. Mm-hmm. So those were really formative pieces for me. Um, and then there were the classic like history of theory classes, Schenkerian analysis, all of that. So I really felt like I got a very solid traditional understanding of the fields. Mm. Um, and my master's thesis was also like solid a classic field work in that it was a Shankarian performance and analysis thesis um, based around Shankarian analysis and Shankarian sketch studies. Mm-hmm. And so I came into the Michigan program thinking I'd do more of the same thing because um, I still hadn't somehow figured out how to maybe do research in the area of gender and sexuality. I had read the Suzanne Cusick piece and the McClary piece, I had had that mind-blowing moment in my undergraduate experience, but I felt like, again, with the idea of professionalization and getting a job and trying to be legitimate in the field of music and music theory specifically, I had internalized the message that I wasn't going to be hireable Mm -hmm. and I wasn't going to, yeah, be legitimately music theory enough if I pursued that line of research. Yeah. And um, again, just talking about internalized harmful narratives that really stop, you know, um, people from, you know, fully representing and sharing their perspectives and knowledge, right? So I was there and I I do want to clarify, it was not the intention of, of my advisor or, or any of the faculty. It was just, that's, you know, the message that I got from just, you know, the field yes. yeah. at, at large, not any individuals. And so I got to Michigan, I was going to do a performance and analysis, you know, PhD project. And then I took a class with Karen Fournier. Um, and it was actually by accident. I was supposed to take a philosophy seminar and it just, you know, fell apart and I needed a theory class. And she was teaching a class on um, feminism, punk and music theory. I, I know, probably am butchering the name of it, but but that was the t- like the general gist of it. And we got to read really cool research, just 
uh, across all of her research interests. Like mm. we read, you know, pop studies, you read like the use of the voice in, in various like pop punk artists. And I ended up being able to do a project that allowed me to read a really important piece that I'm still thinking about and is influential to me, which is Ellie Hisama's um, Post-Colonialism in the Make. Mm. Um, and it allowed me to really deeply think about um, like representations of Asian women in, in popular music. Um, I did my paper like building off of her critique of David Bowie and John Zorn's representations of Asian women uh, with Weezer's album that was influenced by um, that Puccini opera, Madame Butterfly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so Weezer has an album called Pinkerton. Yeah. Um, <laughs> So I did like I a used to love text. Weezer too. Oh, <laughs> hey, it's complicated. Like I still find joy in listening to like the Blue Album. Sure. And even sometimes, like from deeply analyzing the Pinkerton album, I'm like, oh, I love this song. Oh wait, mm. the lyrics are are not so great. <laughs> um, so I was able to to like work with that album, think about it, think about my positionality with with this album, and like and all of my complicated relationships um, with this kind of image and stereotype of Asian women. Mm. Um, And then from there, I took a course with Marion Gook, got to think a bit more about issues of gender and sexuality in the field there. And as you are likely aware, we have like a requirement to take like cognates outside of the field of music theory. So I really took advantage of that and started taking some courses in women's studies and comp lit. So And from there, I got a more robust understanding of, of how to articulate certain aspects of my experience, things that I was seeing that were happening in the world. And I really, really, truly wanted then to help music theorists see these connections as well. Um, and that became my dissertation. Mm. So I had a really fulfilling and life-changing experience at the University of Michigan, just with all of these like confluence of events. Yeah, Um so I'm so glad to hear that you had a positive experience and um, that it was the right choice for you. Uh, I'd love to hear about um, since then, how your experience has been, you know, on the job market, all that stuff. When, what year did you graduate? 2019. 2019. Okay. So, so right before the oh. pandemic. <laughs> yeah. That must have been very tough. So if you're open to sharing about, you know, navigating the, the, the job market and navigating, you know, um, if you were teaching during that time, how that experience was. For sure. Um, so yeah, I guess I'm really stuck today on the theme of like the effects of a professionalization. Yeah. And and I feel like the job market itself and the materials that we require in the genres of writing and you know presenting oneself. Um, was a challenging experience for me with my work mm-hmm. um, and and my positionality and all of that. And I think it took me a long time, multiple tries in the job market to really feel like um, I'm at a place where I can be my most authentic professional self. Mm. Um, so that's, yeah. And, you know, I, I would love to know, yeah, what you mean uh, by that most authentic yeah. academic self. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, there's something generative, I think, that comes from writing the the various kinds of materials that that are expected of you at the job market, right? There's the cover letter, there's right. the teaching philosophy, the research statement, 
Um, I also lucked out in that, you know, the graduate community at the University of Michigan, particularly in like music academic area, was super supportive. Like I had colleagues read my drafts and we really had conversations about like how to represent myself, um, you know, in terms of like how do I situate myself in terms of like areas of study? How do I explain the value of my research in terms of like, um, you know, its outcomes in a cover letter so that like a search committee could understand and also not think I'm absolutely too wacky for to be a music theorist teaching the core curriculum. Mm. So things like that. Um, but, you know, at the end of the day, um, it was a hard experience to, you know, hear feedback about like, um, I don't think you should say this word or like, I mean, why don't you use like gender instead of feminism, you know, like softening language and things like that to make mm-hmm. you more palatable to the job market um, did take its toll on me sometimes. And I felt like through practice and talking to people, I learned various, you know, terminologies and phrases that just were more palatable to certain job market audiences. Mm-hmm. Mm. Um, you know, it didn't feel like my most authentic self. And I feel like the official professional advice is like, you don't want to be your complete authentic self at an interview. You must have a professional sort of sheen or or, or self to you that that yeah. is really what you should present to the, the search committee. But as I've gone through the job market a couple of times, I feel like I'm at a point where I'm comfortable performing my professional self as a version of my authentic self, which is that I care. I'm very thoughtful in in how I respond and think about one's questions. I love learning about other people's perspectives. For a while, I was really scared to ask like follow-up questions at, at job interviews or mm. or feel like, you know, the Q&A period was a time in which I was supposed to perform as an expert um, on my topic. And, and the idea of maybe like asking a follow-up question back at the audience member or asking a clarifying question of where they're coming from might be too intrusive or to open up space for students who are in the job talk to share their own experience was perhaps a little too, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Like showing that I didn't have the absolute power as the professional music theorist in Mm, the room, right? You know? Yeah. I felt like I had to perform that. Authority, yeah. You have to perform. Authority. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, And so at this point, I just... If they don't want me because I'm showing care or that I'm, you know, responding in this way, then I think perhaps I don't want to be there. But again, this might be terrible job advice, <laughs> but I I sleep better at night myself knowing that I can care and express and listen and perform myself. It might also just come from the fact that now I have a more secure position and I, I have that security to perform as I want to as a pedagogue and as a scholar Mm. and a member of the music theoretical community. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I really appreciate you sharing that. So yes, I'd love to actually, before we move on to talking about your pieces, I was just going to ask you if if there were any uh, pieces of advice that you would give to junior music scholars, if you would give to current PhDs, especially from your perspective as a woman of color in the field, um, if there's a piece of advice that you would give to, say, a woman of color currently getting her PhD, maybe at the University of Michigan, um, to help her navigate that space, what would you say? 
Oh, that's a really good question. And also I can talk to like past Vivian as well. Because mm. um, I think this is a really reparative question, I think for me in terms of my own experience and what I had thought I, I needed and actually didn't need. Um, I think my main thing that I've been thinking about as I also advise my own graduate students is to know your self-worth and to value yourself both inside and outside of the field. Mm -hmm. um, I think I spent a lot of my time and I still struggle with this, right? That like my work is so personal to me and when I get rejected or when I feel like I don't get the most ideal understanding or response from my colleagues or students that it feels like they're not getting me, yeah. right? Um, and I think I'm working on that myself and I think I'm better at it, which is that I think we have value as humans inherently, right? And that like the things that I say, the experiences that we have, they are of value. And um, and just to know that no matter how people respond, that it's not about you at, at all times. Mm. Um, and also to value time to care for yourself and to mm. imagine life, you know, as a, not just an academic existence and that you have friends and community and in other ways of caring and loving and relating to others that matter too. And that those kinds of relationships and spaces can be sustaining for you as an academic. So I would love to dissolve the boundary of like taking weekends off, sleeping, hydrating your, yourself, you know, are not academic endeavors, that they are vital to your survival existence and your productivity or research as an academic. Absolutely. That's so... That's just so hard to strike, especially especially as a grad student trying to find those boundaries of, of time for oneself and time to invest in relationships and time to, it can just feel so all consuming, although that doesn't stop after you graduate, right? Like that temptation is still there as an academic to like always be working and always be producing. So that's really... <sighs> I know it's hard and the structures of grad school and certain, you know, people who are in positions of authority can make this viewpoint that I'm, I'm offering difficult. And so as I'm moving into the, um, you know, a different part of my career as like a, and I'm not an older scholar yet, but like a young scholar who has, you know, have you know, has a bit more power in permanent employment, and I finally get to mentor graduate students, I am trying to create a space uh, for my graduate students to, to realize their value a bit more, to um, understand that they can ask me um, to, to change the way that I relate to them so that it better fits what they need whether that's changing a deadline so they can sleep after a performance, you know, because mm. I also teach a lot of dual degree students in performance as well. So, um, and that it's okay for me or okay for them to ask for these things and to express their needs to me. Mm. Yeah, that's huge. And that's so great that you are willing to, again, just to recognize their full personhood humanity and to prioritize their well-being helps them to prioritize their own well-being you know so that's hopefully the role of educators is that we're not just trying to you know disseminate the information and call it a day that we're also fostering young people's 
growth and development and um, the centering of their own well-being as they like grow into adults. So yeah, it's just such a pivotal time. The college age time is such an interesting pivotal time that I'm I'm excited to be invested. I guess I already am invested in as I'm started my teaching this year. Mm. <laughs> I mean, I'm happy to talk about that too. The experience of being a new teacher. Oh, messy. Last semester, I was so, the whole semester, I was terrified. I kept yes. waiting for the, for the fear to go away. And it really persisted. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. And also, I don't know if this will make you feel better, but what you just described with the anxiety. Oh, I remember that. And I still get, you know, pre-class jitters, especially right at the beginning of the semester. Right. right? And um, I can share like why I'm anxious when I teach. And maybe if you would like, you can share yours. But I think it comes down to like, you want to, you want your students to get something meaningful from what you're teaching, Mm -hmm. right? And you want to... But I want to, I'll just I'll reframe it back at me. I really want them to find value in what when what I'm doing and that I'm providing them with, you know, resources and skills to, you know, succeed whatever they do. So mm-hmm. then it feels like, you know, my thrice a week, 15 minute meetings with them are these really important moments where I have to like mm. be on and be this resource of, of all these things for them. Um, and as now I become a teacher of teaching for graduate students, I teach a pedagogy and music theory class here. I, I started to be able to think a bit more about how like that image of the teacher itself, like where did we get it from and why do we have to be this perfect dispenser of knowledge, right? Mm. And why do I have to perfectly know how to spell every augmented six word in every different key that's possible, right? Like I don't. Um, and that I can model what it can be like to be a human as a teacher, that sometimes I have days where I can't spell, you know, chords, or I've forgotten how integer notation for set theory, and I can ask my students or admit to them that I don't know everything, and that their perspective then can enrich the class too. Mm. And I think that's been really freeing for me. Um, and I was just talking to my graduate students about this um, in a different course on um I think just decolonizing the music theory curriculum or talking and reading about um, Hungry Listening by Dylan Robinson. And this, I think, fear that students have about like opening up the space um, for difficult conversations, bad feelings, um, indigenous, you know, resistance or like saying no from like local cultural bearers if you're asking them to come to the classroom and this fear of of like not having everything set up properly. Mm-hmm. Whereas I feel like these are moments where we can admit our vulnerability if we can collaborate with culture bearers or just other, you know, musical specialists in areas that we don't know, that's like a really great thing because we can share the work, we can share the burden of of what it's like to teach and share our time and resources with our students. We can learn from our students' experiences. And I think taking less of the focus from us and sharing it with others is a really meaningful shift for me as a pedagogue. I think that makes me feel less anxious now. Okay, 
so then, yes, let's get into talking about your MTO article and your blog post for uh, Engaged Music Theory. It was, both of those pieces were really really fascinating to me. Again, I had mentioned that I was already familiar with it, with your MTO article um, while I was at Roosevelt and just seeking all of that sweet Suzanne Cusick knowledge. <laughs> so I was so happy to come across it and, you know, also, in, you know, introduced me to other names like Marion Gook and Lisa Barg and, you know, other people that are doing interesting work around feminist music theory and musicology. The thing that I really, really appreciate about this article, first of all, is the question of, again, pushing the boundaries of what music theory is and what music theory can be. I always take note, right, when an article doesn't have a musical example, right? You're always waiting for, you know, they introduce the premise and you read the abstract and they introduce the theory, da 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 da, da you're reading and you're like, hey, where's the, where's the musical example? Where is it going to show up that, you know, she gets into a score or whatever the case may be? And that right there is already, you know, frankly, kind of a radical choice for music theory. Um, you know, even even thinking about the nerves I have about getting something published like that, like how difficult that process might be as far as having to prove that it's still music theory without um, there being a musical example in there. So I would love to hear... Um, your rationale as far as were there pieces that you felt like you could directly apply this to or was it kind of the point that like you you just wanted to open the door to this conversation and yeah yeah um I guess this makes me think about actually how this piece started and it was actually as a paper for a women's studies course mm -hmm. um at the University of Michigan. So I published this when I was a graduate student. And so I think the origin of this was really about reading some classic texts in um, feminist music theory and applying like my newly found theories of feminism knowledge to like understand like what was happening at the time in, in music theory that that made this occur and what exactly was the methodology or the perspective in dialogue with larger like theories and activisms of feminism that was happening with Marion's work and with Fred's work and Suzanne's work and all of them at the time. So I think because of that origin, the idea of adding a musical example for me didn't even occur because my professor who I was studying with was um, like a political theorist. And mm. so I was writing for a completely different audience. And then as I was working this paper for a music theoretical audience and I had presented this actually at the committee for the status of women meeting a couple of years or a year before I, I submitted it for review um I I think I was asked the musical example question of like so can you like demonstrate this or like choose a musical example mm -hmm. and then I responded with like reluctance almost like I still struggle at times to articulate and to write about my experience with music. Um, and I know that that's a really perhaps weird thing to say as a music theorist who, again, as, as you've noted, like we often share these really deep and careful readings of pieces of music um, as a part of our scholarship, right? Or in our classes and in our teaching. But for some reason, this piece didn't feel like it needed that. And I was still working through sort of my reluctance to share some of my deep relationships with music. It just felt too personal. Mm. Um, 
I know it's weird. Um, and I, so I just, I left it. And then I was actually asked by a reviewer um, for MTO to, to expand a bit more with an example. And again, I really struggled at the time to be like, well, like, do I want to share my own loving? Mm. Is it hypocritical of me to share my own loving or to, uh, to remove it completely? Um, and I ended up adding, I think it was Fred's own experience with a Pisoni piano concerto instead as an example of, of what this writing could look like. Mm. Um, and I don't know, maybe there was just something happening in my grad school experience at the time that I can't quite pinpoint, but like it just felt too personal. And um, it could also be re re um, related to, so I identify as queer now, but at the time I think I was still struggling very much with, um, uh, you know, I, I was identifying as straight at the time. I didn't have the best experience of sort of um, growing up and thinking about my sexuality. I'll just leave it vague as that. Um, and um, so I think it might just have been related to sort of my, my time in that life and in grad school thinking about like how to really reckon with my own identity. Yeah. Um, so, but since then, and since this article, I have been able to write about it. It's a chapter in my dissertation. Um, I talk about a Shankarian analysis of a Bach piece, and I was able to, I guess, find ways of writing about music more personally in an, in an autoethnographic way that I think fit the way mm. that I wanted to represent the history of the piece a bit more, um, but was definitely a journey. Mm. Yeah, so I think a part of the struggle that I think I articulated in, in my earlier response to you was that I didn't feel like I had a way of writing about music that really truly embodied what I was asking for. Mm. And then, so that's the first thing. And then the second thing is um, that I sometimes find that in our professionalized, you know, um, professionalization as music theorists that we can get distracted by a musical example. Um, I've seen this happen at conferences where someone's giving a talk and then, you know, they're saying all these wonderful things and theorizing about like, you know, really complicated matters about the ontologies of music or the social con like context of the music that they're studying. But then they get to some notes and then the question period is entirely about the merits or the lack of merit of their musical analysis. Mm. It distracts us. It's a really easy habit something that really snaps into place for us mm. um like in a common sense way um i in my research i talk a lot about sort of habits of thought habits of knowing right mm. that it's an easy thing for us to sort of orient to and quickly assess right we're really trained i think um intentionally or not to really stare at the notes and really judge whether it, it what this person is saying about these notes or this these sounds really or affects our experience or not, right? That's like the measure of, of how we find an analysis convincing. So that's the other thing. It, it could have been distracting. Mm. Um, and then the third thing is, and I feel really weird about admitting this because I know that my piece was all about music loving and the merits of analysis in deepening our love of music, or at least, um, you know, being a mode of loving for our music, which is that sometimes... I end up 
having a traumatic experience with the piece after I analyze it and then I cannot listen to it anymore for a while and I just didn't want that experience I don't know if this is a relatable experience to you or to other music theorists but sometimes when we're required to analyze music or we feel like you know we really want to get into the deep you know the notes and the sound and the meaning of it and we have this intense like experience with the piece yeah it becomes imbued with all of these memories of that moment and they're not always positive moments in our life or like we start connecting networks of of connections of conversations of things that um you know other things and so for me sometimes if i have that deep experience with music it can it can lead me to needing a break from a piece for a while or yeah. like or it'll be forever marked with that memory and sometimes i'm not ready or willing to do that Okay, this is so fascinating. You know, uh, of all of the guests that I've had on the show, whenever I ask um, kind of that advice question, which I ask in different ways, sometimes I ask about teaching, sometimes I ask about um, every time that I've asked about um, specifically when it comes to developing a dissertation topic, overwhelmingly, the advice from older scholars, junior scholars is always you have to pick music that you love. You have to pick music that you love because you're going to get sick of it. And so it has to be something that you don't feel lukewarm about. It has to be something that you have a lot to say about. And it has to be music that you really, really enjoy or else, you know, the the process of the dissertation will feel, you know, unnecessarily laborious. So this is really interesting because like having a degree of separation between the music that you really, really love and the research that you're doing, I also feel, you know, a bit of hesitation um, around inviting that music into that vulnerable space of like, of my late nights and my panic and peer review and, <laughs> right? And of that, as you're saying, that music kind of getting imbued with the experience of trying to publish something, the experience of trying to get through a dissertation project or, you know, that sort of thing. So I think that that's a really great point that you bring up about, well, what happens if your experience of that time isn't positive, then that does affect your relationship with that music. And I can totally understand being protective of the music that you love the most, you know? Yeah. And to be clear, I give this advice too, right? Like I advise students and I'm like, you start with, you know, what you're passionate about or like the questions that you want to ask um, about the music that you're listening to, right? Um, but I guess some, a question that I've been thinking a lot about recently is like, as a professional field, as our society, and I'm not the only person who's asked this question, like it's in Dylan Robinson's work, it's in conversations that I've had with my colleagues, um, is does our field deserve all kinds of musical experiences, all kinds of, of genres of music um, in our field to be completely visible and seen and heard at all times? Are there just certain kinds of knowledge that maybe like we have to earn mm. and you know, express care and spend time with the people and with the music in order for us to really earn that knowledge and experience? This is yeah. so huge. Listeners, this is it. Okay, I feel like, wow, that question of of what knowledge is earned versus what knowledge is taken 
extracted what knowledge we feel entitled to. It is giving colonial, right? Like it's giving. And so that that is a really great point about does all music belong in this space? You know, the idea that music has to belong to a space like this to be legitimized, then it's okay for there to be musics and for there to be musicians who reject that, who say, then my music's not for that space. Um, I think about this all the time with Black music, with the way that I just had an episode for Black History Month about uh, creating community around hip hop and the status of rap research in the academy and like, who's doing rap research? Hmm. <laughs> What's happening to rap when white people are doing rap research? So like, you know, and, and um, just any sort of rebel music, like a, a hip hop or like a punk or like a, any sort of underground music that is rebelling against you know um mainstream commercialized music and music mediums what does it do to bring them into you know such a such a sterilized such a standardized setting for again to be examined fixed all of those things so it's it's it brings up it's it's murky waters for me it's very it's very tumultuous <laughs> yeah and to reframe this positively because i'm also a really big fan of of imagining creatively and imagining otherwise right so like w- what would it be like to imagine spaces where like you know future spaces of music theory where like you we would be more okay with experiencing this music together hmm does that make sense? Like, if we were to like wildly, creatively imagine like what that space would be, what could we do? You know, and we don't have to answer this question today. Of course, this could be a lifelong journey. But those are the questions that I think sustain me after you know my negative, um, uh, what's the word? Um, you know how I negatively just admitted that I don't want to share the music that I love with others at all times. Mm. No. no, maybe we just need to imagine these spaces, and then we can be okay with that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, that's the thing is music is such a a volatile, varied experience. It's not like it's not okay to have music that is for you. Right. Music that is a solitary experience versus music that that's a communal experience and serves a communal function. Yes. So another thing that I really love about your MTO article before we move on is, you know, the way that you frame because I, I feel like some readers might not may not inevitably make the connection between music loving and feminism, but the way that you frame it as it's like the way that the act of loving itself is gendered kind of thrusts it into this feminist space and the way that yeah, loving as a as an act is is gendered as feminine then discredits or attempts to discredit music loving as a framework. And so I just really, I really love the parallels that you're drawing there and kind of the act of, like the act itself of reclaiming music loving as a framework is a feminist act, if that makes sense. Totally. Yeah. I think going back to our earlier conversations about like, um, 
accurately representing my professional self in a way that doesn't want to make my soul die. Mm, <laughs> right. Yeah. You know, and I feel like whether it is through socialization, through inheritance of my personality connected to my gender re- representation, I'm it's care for me is so important. Mm. It is something that, um, you know, I feel like isn't often associated with, you know, masculinized value words like rigorous. It's not objective. It's not all of these things that we value. But I do think it is such a skill. It takes so much care and work and practice. Um, And I'm here, again, equating care with love for me is something that I think um, I do a lot. And I know that, you know, not everyone agrees, but that's my perspective on on these two words, that it is in itself such a powerful thing to do. Mm-hmm. And to re-embrace that and its potential in our field, no matter how we choose to gender it or to not gender it, um, it can be such an asset for the future of our field. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Like it isn't sadly feminized in our field and and in our world, right? There's a lot of articles and perspectives on the feminization of care work, you know, like parenting, you know, the nursing profession, teaching mm-hmm. all of those things and how, you know, um, how these kinds of labor are, um, you know, paid or supported or, yeah. you know, are, are definitely lacking. Mm-hmm. And so I see love and care in terms of how we treat music as a part of, you know, this larger societal cultural issue that we're dealing with when it comes to valuing these kinds of relationships that have liberatory potentials Mm. yeah do you have anything else that you want to bring up about the mto article it's just really just gratitude i think um it was one of the last issues that nicole biamonte did and Mm. edited as the editor-in-chief of mto and i'm just just really grateful that she um, had this call for papers because um, it was explicitly meant to be a feminist music theory issue. Mm. And it actually empowered me to submit my work. I was a graduate student and I don't think I would have submitted this paper um, and felt the need to if I hadn't had the specialized call for papers. Like I feel like if it was just a regular MTO submission or like I had to you know, do that on my own without this deadline and without the specific call, I wouldn't have done it. Mm. So I'm just really grateful that for her and the editorial staff at the time to have made this decision. Yeah, that's a good point. Cause I'm like, oh, it's not even on my radar. It would have, it would take some special circumstances for me to, (laughs) for me to get it together enough to do it. Yeah, and as we're dealing with like, you know, representation issues in publication, I guess, you know, I guess it's an invitation for our field, perhaps for our professional society to think about how issues like this, calls like this can be so helpful in Mm. inviting voices and perspectives who might otherwise feel like they don't belong in the field. Mm. That's huge. That's a great point. Mm -hmm. Um, So, yes. So to get to your... um, engaged music theory blog which listeners remember everything will be linked in the show notes if you want to check it out i was so fascinated when i read this 
Um, as far as, first of all, it's pushing again kind of the, the structure and the format of music theory because it's kind of written in this really interesting prose. There's kind of some poetry going on. You have, you know, regular, regular citations, but there's also, as far as how it's just even formatted on the page is so fascinating. So again, just everything that's kind of pushing the boundaries of not including a musical example, but having, you know, incorporating this prose. I remember I... Um, last year I took um, Shakirian analysis with Kevin Corson and I wrote a final paper about Florence Price and um, also added a lot of stuff about Alice Walker and her definition of womanism and I remember his feedback he was so generous in saying oh this is really interesting you should like incorporate some poetry or you should incorporate some prose or whatever in your and I remember being like can't do that like that was literally my I was like what <laughs> that would be wild <laughs> me and so um to kind of see it actually modeled um for me is really helpful as someone who had this reaction of like oh I, I could never do something like that or I it wouldn't be appropriate it wouldn't be marketable to do so um but you know to kind of see it so boldly on display here I just really appreciated it yeah, thank you. Um, and again, it took me, you know, quite a journey to be okay with actually writing a piece like this, right? Mm -hmm. Because, you know, as as you just articulated with your own experience, like, this is not research. This is not how a string carrying analysis or like course paper slash article, whatever should be written like, or like I have a form that I'm supposed to embody in how I write a piece. Um, so, so I was really grateful for the invitation from the engaged music theory working group then to have this space to and freedom to work on a piece where it's just you know it's not just a blog but you know it's a blog right so I had a bit more freedom in terms of typesetting in terms of like the length of it to really sort of fit what I wanted and to experiment with format so I was really grateful for that and then in terms of thinking about influence and speaking of the University of Michigan um, I took this seminar with Marion Gook called Music as Evocative Object, um, and it was a really defining moment for me and actually a number of my, my uh, fellow graduate students. Um, we all got our dissertations from that seminar, actually. Um, she let me write a piece about how difficult it was to write about music. And she was like, use whatever way that you want. Like, if you want to like break out apart prose, if you want to just write fragments, like whatever you need to, to really write about this experience, right? So I ended up writing a really wonky, like, I mean, my words, not hers, <laughs> wonky, like seminar paper where like, you know, there was broken up prose. There was like really deep personal reflections about my experience in the field as an like a Asian American woman. Um. So that was my first foray at it. And I didn't really quite know what to do with that. And then returning to it during the pandemic when I felt just, you know, utterly broken by the job market, like it really felt like at that time that I, I originally wrote this piece, uh, which was for an AMS music and philosophy study group session, I really felt like I wasn't going to stay. You know, mm -hmm. I write about in that piece how I had been moving around um, the continent for a while and it was such a terrible job market that year um, because, you know, universities had stopped searches, right. you know, and the funding and all of that was up in the air because of the economic situation arising from the pandemic. So that was really the moment that I felt the most free, oddly, like 
if I don't have a future in this field, what would I want to say? How can I make apparent all of these invisible kinds of experiences, these feelings, these affects, these effects of what we are asking each other to do as professionals, mm. more apparent to you so that if I don't survive, at least this will be said. So yeah, it was that odd freedom of not being able to maybe stay in the field that really opened me up. But I guess, you know, now I'm here and I still ended up publishing it. So <laughs> and we'll I'm see so, if it was a smart career. No, well, absolutely. Yeah. I'm so glad you did. I mean, yes, it 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 really gets at, you know, your your prompted what are we asking each other to do? Right, we're all lying. Writing is hard. We're all mm -hmm lying <laughs> writing is hard and it's a it's a a deeply intensive internal personal process for all of us and even as removed as sometimes we make music theory right like as um as as we try to separate ourselves from can separate ourselves from the music that we write about. Often, again, we write about music that we like, have a fascination with, um, are engaged with. And so that means a lot of the scholarship is just like, look at this great piece that I like. Yay. And that's the thing. Um, you know, it's it still, again, can can be removed from this, this deeply personal element of what not only the act of writing about it, but what it means to write about it. That's never part of the scholarship is here's my, you know, analysis of this Florence Price piece. And also here's what it felt like to write about it. Here are the stakes for me writing about this music as someone who also shares this identity, as someone who went to the same university as Florence Price, as someone who, right, like we are always kind of removing ourselves and our identities from, from our work, and and then subsequently erasing the process of what it's like to write about that music as well. So writing about writing about music, it's just something that doesn't really, I think, occur to us to do or even occur to us to ask to really think about our own process of writing and, and how it feels and how it could be better if it should be better or if writing is just hard and it's supposed to be hard. And if what what would it look like if we were all honest about it's hard <laughs> and we procrastinate and it's hard to receive feedback wow i don't know that i've talked about on the podcast um that part of my phd journey so far as far as like even learning to receive feedback on my writing for the first time um which is also a very vulnerable act to have other people read your writing you know obviously people kind of just see the quote unquote finished product of whatever you write, but they don't see the process of peer review and they don't see the process of cutting things out, adding things in, deciding what is worthy of being seen by the public. So even just, yeah, even just a reckoning with academic writing versus writing in general, our very unique relationship to writing, like as academics, you know, it's all, I'm talking a lot, but continue. <laughs> No, I really enjoy that you're sharing this experience with me um, because it resonates a lot with my own past experience in certain ways. And then also it makes me think a lot about questions and ideas about like, how did we end up with these perceptions, right? About like what it means to write 
what it means to sound in a specific way. What does it mean to get feedback and how to receive it, mm. right? And these are larger things like beyond, of course, you know, the Society for Music Theory and, and you know, the field of music theory itself, right? It gets into like issues and perceptions of like what kinds of knowledges count, like in, in like public school education, in, you know, media, all those things. So like these messages are everywhere. I think about what kinds of ways of writing matter, mm-hmm. what kinds of ways of representing ourselves in like civil and like legitimate ways truly matter. If you get a little too emotive in, in like particular gendered bodies, like then you just don't make sense or you're like, quote, crazy, right? Mm. You know, like these are all entangled with issues of, of many aspects of our identity. So I'm just making it very broad here. Um, and at the same time, um, make, bringing it back to music theory as profession, um, I wish we had more space, more resources, more time, more care for ourselves in order for us to really truly think about how we share feedback with others and how we present, you know, other academics have had horror stories of receiving, you know, peer-reviewed feedback, where it's just like an entire S, like, you know, equivalently lengthed um, article essay about how your article was terrible, Mm -hmm. right? And like, so my generous reading is that like we just have not been trained or have you know a world or a space perhaps for us to really take time to absorb each other's ideas and to you know come to it as a dialogue right Mm. there's so many reasons i think why why we accidentally intent intentionally or whatever create harm in in systems like peer review because maybe we feel like our little stake in the field is threatened by the scholar who might write differently about something that I'm known for, right? Mm. Like, it's really hard for us, I think, um, to, when we believe in this, like, culture of precarity and scarcity of resources, right, to to yeah. share them, yes, right? Yeah. So I can see that coming there. I can also just see, like, replications of, you know, how we have per- have internalized scholarly rigor and what that means onto what we ask of others when we give feedback. I think, but I think that's such a great point about like, where do we learn to give and receive feedback? That's something that you, we don't have a class on that, right? We don't really have conversations about that. And so you just kind of have to hope that the feedback you get is generous and you have to learn how to take feedback that is both generous and not generous. And you have to learn how to, which feedback you're going to, keep which feedback is valuable which feedback doesn't really pertain to you or is embedded with that baggage of um of bias or coming from that mindset of scarcity meant to harm so it's it's a really it's kind of a minefield <laughs> especially as a graduate student to kind of navigate for the first time yeah as a you know a person in my career situation now as someone teaching graduate students, I spent a lot of time thinking about how I want to model what it's like to give feedback. Mm. So my my response to my students writing, you know, is is done with a lot of care um, of what that looks like. And so I feel like that is a part of my pedagogical mentoring and professional service role is to model what it would be like to give feedback with care. And I'm not perfect, of course, and I'm always receptive or try to be at least when it comes to you know, if the wording of something I said to a student or to a colleague just, you know, didn't hit the way that I thought it would, or like it just, you know, created a bit of a situation, I'm open to hearing that. It's it's hard, but 
But that's the first point is that I try to model feedback and I'm always learning and changing about what that can look like in careful ways. Yeah. Yeah. Your, your part about like discerning what feedback is valuable to you and what feedback would just like be too compromising for you or your sort of stance on a thing gets back to the, the, the point I'm trying to make about knowing yourself and your value and mm-hmm. caring for yourself. Right. And we are not always in positions in our lives where we can, even if it's well meant feedback and it would, you know, better service in the future to always have the energy to, to completely contemplate and, and enact those changes. So it's also, I guess what I'm trying to say is to be kind to ourselves when it comes to maybe receiving feedback and our ability and capacities mm-hmm. to incorporate mm-hmm. suggestions and some, and I wish we had more time that could slow down, mm. um, you know, when it comes to like the process of writing yes. and, and receiving feedback, I think that would mitigate a lot of these perhaps clashes and harm mm-hmm. that happen in the research process. And then this leads me to the third point, which is um, that third, my, um, my blog post was an attempt to perform um what it could be like if we could create a space where we could actually talk about and process these feelings together, which is something that I've been trying to advocate more publicly in my research. Like, I think we need more time and care and affective literacy to hold and create spaces for the, you know, to create better work and better, like, societal, you know, um, as a, you know, SMT communities or professional communities and therefore perhaps broader senses of community. And that is going to do it for this episode of the podcast. Thank you so much to Dr. Vivian Long for being on the show. It's always great to connect with another Michigan grad and to connect my audience to her incredible work. Again, the links to her writings that we just mentioned are in the show notes. If you have any feedback about the show, if you want to get in touch with me, if you want to suggest a topic for the show, or you want to be on the show to talk about what you do in music, please send me an email, hermusicacademia at gmail.com, or go to my website, hermusicacademia.com, and fill out the contact form there. Let's get you and your work on the show. Until next time, thanks for listening. Thank you.